you have your Bibles, please open to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Mark started us off last week uh, for the first of three weeks in John chapter 11 on the story of the death and the raising of Lazarus. It is an amazing section of Scripture. And I I told my wife um, to pray for me as I was studying this. The more I dove into this text and was thinking through it and pondering all that was here, I was like, pray that I can use my time wisely because we don't have two to three hours um, to go through all of this. It is amazing. The more we linger over a text of Scripture, the more we see is there uh, that God has for us. Um, So I want to read in John chapter 11. I'm going to start back in verse 1 and I'm going to read up through verse 27. Uh, Our focus today will be verses 7 through 27. We'll read that and then we'll pray and then we will dive into the text. John chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad or I rejoice that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. God, we would be lost if you had not spoken to us, if you had not given us a book that we can read, that we can study, that we can consider and we can meditate on and wrestle with and understand by your Holy Spirit's help. God, you have given us such a treasure in the Bible. And God, you have given us such a treasure in this 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. God, what a story. And not just one of myth or legend. This is reality. This actually happened. And our faith is built on real history such as what we are reading right now and what we are studying for these next few moments. God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in this text. God, help us see the glory of Jesus. Help us see the glory of our triune God. Help us see the glory of Your promise to give life. Lord, help us see the hope of the resurrection. God, especially considering the season that we are in as a church right now, Lord, help us to have our faith and our hope and our trust in You and Your promises and the reality of who Jesus is and what He has done and will do. Make that all the more certain to our grieving hearts. And so Lord, even as we just sang, speak. Plant Your truth deep in us. Shape and fashion us for Your glory. God, we want to leave more like Jesus because of our time together today. So we pray that You'd work by Your Spirit to bring about that very end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this is an amazing section of Scripture that we're looking at. And it's a very familiar story. One we, we probably know better than others. It's probably more culturally known than others. It takes up a, a whole chapter of Scripture Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, um, and it's one worthy of our time and consideration. And again, just reviewing a few things from last week, obviously, Jesus, he was good friends with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He loved them. Now, obviously, Jesus loved all people, but Jesus, being a human being, also would have some friendships that would kind of rise above others, and that's, a, that's an okay and good thing if you have Lots of friends, but then you have some that you're extra close to. That's, that's a good thing. Jesus was, it seems, extra close with Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He spent time with them. They, when he went their way, he was one of those he'd make sure he'd stop over to see them. We don't do that for just anyone, but for some, we do. And Lazarus and Mary and Martha were such friends with Jesus. And so Lazarus gets sick. And they know who Jesus is, obviously. He's not just a friend. He's the, the Messiah. He's the one who can heal the sick. And so they send to Jesus and tell him that Lazarus is ill. And being um, the, the true friend that Jesus is, he responds in only the way that Jesus could. He hears that Lazarus is ill and he stays where he is. Jesus often does things and says things that are perplexing to us at first. But then the more we consider them, we see they're actually the best things, uh, the, the best path that could be 
walked. And so Jesus said in verse 4 that Lazarus' illness does not lead to death. He's talking about ultimately Lazarus isn't going to stay dead. That's not the ultimate outcome of this situation. What does he say? It is for the glory of God. So however it is that Jesus is going to respond to this situation, it's going to glorify God. And as he says, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he's going to glorify God and he's going to bring glory to himself in his response to Lazarus's illness. And it says, verse 5, clearly, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And that brings us into our text today. And then after that two days passed, verse 7, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And so here in verses 7 through 10 and the end of verse 15, we see Jesus' determination. We see Jesus' determination. Because he says, let us go to Judea again. What is it that Jesus has determined to do? What is this determination that is so set um, in his heart and in his mind? Going from verse 4, obviously he is determined to glorify God. That That is his chief goal in everything that he does is to bring glory to God. Everything he says, everything he does, even the timing in which he does it is intended to bring glory to God. Secondly, he is determined to love Lazarus. He's determined to love Lazarus. Now, again, his love at first sight is not the way we might think you would show love to someone who's a close friend. We think immediately rush there, you know, or Jesus doesn't even have to go there. He could just say the word. We've seen Jesus do that in other places. He just says the word and somebody's healed from a distance. He didn't do that. <clears throat> so we must understand that his love isn't just an in the moment thing. It's much bigger than that. But he loves Lazarus. And what he chooses to do in, in terms of his dealing with Lazarus is going to show that his love is far greater than just a momentary, oh, he's sick, let me make him better. So Jesus is determined to glorify God. He's determined to love Lazarus and to love him like no one else could. Next, we see that he is determined to do God's will. He's determined to do God's will. Look again at verse 7. Let us go to Judea again. His disciples said, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And he's referring back the disciples to uh, chapter 10 when Jesus says that he and the Father are one. Um, He's clearly in that passage right before chapter 11 claiming to be God and one with God. And and the Pharisees and the Jews, they want to stone him for that. He eludes their grasp. And the disciples are like, Jesus, don't you remember? They just tried to kill you. Why are you going to go back? It hasn't been a, a very long passage of time since that happened. And they're concerned, obviously, for Jesus. And like we'd be probably a little bit concerned for themselves, too, if we go with him and we know what they want to do to him. It's likely something like that could happen to us. But Jesus is determined to do the will of God. Why? Why is he going to go back to Judea? Why is he going to go back to a place where he knows he could very well lose his life and actually will lose his life? And look at what he says in answer to them. Verse 9, he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And so we, we hear Jesus say that, and it at first might not seem like he's answering the question, but he actually is. Why are we going back? To walk in the light means we're going to be doing God's will. And that's what Jesus is determined to do. So let's keep in mind, <clears throat> the will of God for Christ at this point is at least in probably two major things. Number one, it's the cross is still Christ's focus and goal. He knows that's what's coming. In fact, probably within several weeks, maybe a month, a little more, depending on how you understand the time, he's going to be crucified. He knows that when he raises Lazarus, that's going to be kind of the act, that's going to be the action that kicks into gear the plan to put him to death. They've tried to kill him here, they've tried to get him here, but from that moment when it's reported what he did, that's when they say, we have got to take this guy out. So he knows that. He knows what's coming, and the cross is still his focus and his goal. He knows he has to get there, and he knows what's going, what's going to happen that's going to precipitate and bring about his crucifixion. And here's the thing. Potential opposition did not deter Jesus from obeying God. The disciples are like, why go if you could be killed? And Jesus is like, we have to go. We have to go. And this is what walking in the light is. It's obeying God. It's living in. It's living by His truth. And we know His truth is what's revealed in His Word. So if we want to walk in the light, that means we walk in what His Word teaches. The opposite is walking in darkness. And darkness is, is a life of rejecting and dismissing God in His Word. And so how was Jesus able to have such a, a focused determination to do God's will in the face of his coming death, in the face of the opposition that he knew he was going to encounter? How did he do that, that even in the midst of such strong hatred and eventual death? Well, here's how I think he did it. He lived a life that was in every way structured according to God's word. And I think that's the key. He lived a life that was in every way structured according to God's Word. I mean, he talks about in another place in the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, the, the story of the woman at the well's disciples, you know, after that whole encounter, they're like, hey, are you hungry? You need food? He's like, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. And earlier on, even further back than that, in his temptation in the wilderness, what did he say? Um, to, to the devil, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. His whole life was structured according to the word of God, and that is the key. And so how was he able to live a life that's structured according to God's word? We're just going to work our way back on this. He was able to live a life structured that way because every part of who he was was shaped by God's word. He lived a life structured according to the Word because his, every part of who he was, his mind and his heart, was shaped by that same Word. It changed. It, it affected everything about him. Everything was shaped by the Word. And then we have to ask the question, how was it that he came to be shaped in that way by God's Word? How, how is it that every single part of who he was was shaped by the Word of God? Well, he was shaped by the Word of God because he was saturated with the Word of God. And we know the word saturation. It's like you're filled up 
to overflowing. You squeeze it and water, like a, a sponge is saturated. You squeeze it and the water just gushes out. It's, it's saturated and, and that was Jesus. He was saturated with the Word of God, probably unlike any human being who'd ever lived before him. What was it Spurgeon said about uh, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress? If you were to cut him or prick him, he would bleed Bible. If that was true of a, a man of God, a Christian, how much more was that true of the Son of God himself? He was saturated with the Word of God. That's how he could be shaped by it and structure his life according to it. And we ask the question, how did he get saturated with it? A simple answer, it's because he soaked in it or lingered in it constantly, repeatedly, daily. He soaked himself in God's Word. And I think we could say that one of, if not the biggest goals of the Christian life is we want to be like Jesus. I mean, we do. That's what it means to be a Christian. We're like Christ. And I think the majority of the time we think of being like Jesus, we think in terms of our character. But it's also the course of our life, the habits that we take. And if we want to be like Jesus, it, it would be good for us to think about what was one of his biggest habits, what was one of the things that he did that fundamentally uh, determined who he was as a person. And it was that he was so soaked in God's word. He daily soaked himself in the Word of God. That's how it was able to, he was able to be saturated with it, how it was able to shape him, and how he was able to structure everything about his life according to it. It all starts with daily immersion in the Word. And again, obviously, Jesus is the Son of God. He's perfect without sin. He was able to do that in a way that none of us ever will. But nonetheless, we have the Spirit of God. We have this amazing book. We have the opportunity to soak in this Word on a regular, consistent basis. And if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to develop the character of Jesus and the mindset of Jesus, to be able to love like Jesus loved and have the boldness that Jesus had and, and, and speak truth in a way that would honor Him, the only way we can do that is to soak ourselves in this book on a regular, consistent basis. And the flip of that is simply a good self-diagnostic. If we look at our lives and we say, I don't see Christ's likeness like I should, one real clear place we can go is to say, how much time have I been spending in the Word? It is one of the, it's, it's so simple. It's so amazingly simple. And yet it is one of the most important and fundamental pieces of our discipleship, of our growth, that we are regularly in the Word of God. And so we see Christ's determination to obey God. How is it that he could be so determined? Because again, he knows that when he goes back to Judea, it's going to start the process that's going to eventually lead to his crucifixion. He could have that determination, face that opposition, because he was so rooted and soaked in God's word. And so we see first, Jesus's determination. We see secondly, and that there, there could have been four or five points beyond what I'm going to say. I, had, I boiled it down to three. It was really tough. Um, but secondly, we see in this text, death's transformation. We saw first Jesus' determination. Secondly, we see death's transformation. Because remember, again, He's going to raise Lazarus. Okay, That's the next step in His journey. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. In verse 15, we have one of the few places in the Gospels where it actually talks about Jesus rejoicing or being glad. And he's glad, he's rejoicing that Lazarus died and he wasn't there. He's rejoicing in that, and that should make us think a little bit. What do we find joy in? Do we find joy in the same things the way Jesus does? Why? Because Jesus knew. He knew the glory that was going to be displayed. He knew the power that was going to be shown in really raising Lazarus from being really, really dead. But let's think about this because I, said, I entitled this section Death's Transformation. Because again, he, he talks about Lazarus as having fallen asleep. And this is a very common way in the New Testament to talk about a believer who has died. Paul talks about this, 1 Thessalonians, um, other places as well. He's fallen asleep. And I think from our perspective here, our earthly viewpoint, we need to understand death as rest or sleep for God's people. When someone dies, it's like from our perspective, when a loved one passes from this life and their spirit goes to be with Jesus, it's like they're falling asleep. And when someone we know says, hey, I'm going to go take a nap, you know at one point they're going to get back up and you're going to see them again. Well, that's what we need to think about when it comes to those who die. It's a temporary time of sleep from our perspective in which they're at rest on this, in this earth, but that's not the last we see of them. They're going to get back up again and we're going to see them again. So death is sleep for God's people from our earthly viewpoint, but from the heavenly perspective, death is a coming to life in God's presence. And so we have to ask then, what happens to our souls or our spirits when we die? This is a question I get a lot. I'm a Bible teacher like Mark is. Like students ask lots of good questions. Sometimes they ask really goofy ones. Sometimes they ask some of the most profound questions you can imagine. And it's amazing how much it comes back to this issue. There's, there's apparently just a lot of confusion um, this is a scary topic for a lot of people. What happens when we die? But I mean, let's just be honest. Unless Jesus comes back, death is a 100% certainty for every single one of us in this room. You and I will die, and there is no chance that's not going to happen unless Jesus comes back. Every single one of us, 100% death rate in here. And we're not making light of it, we're just being real. We're just being real because we live in a culture that does not like to talk about death. We do everything we can to put off even thinking about death. But death is the one reality that we all will face. And so we need to understand what happens to us when we die. What happens? Here's one way we don't need to think about this. This is in terms of systematic theology and Bible doctrine, uh, a doctrine called soul sleep. Uh, maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. It takes the words of Scripture like when Jesus says Lazarus was sleeping, and they say, well, 
when, when a person dies, their body dies, their spirit goes to sleep, and their next waking thought will be when they stand in the presence of God at the final day. There's no anything in between. It's they, they die, and then the next thing they know, it's final judgment, new creation. And I want to tell you, that is absolutely false. That is not the picture that the Bible gives us of what happens to our souls or our spirits when we die. From an earthly perspective, it's like they've gone to sleep. But what happens when to us when we die is our bodies go into the grave and then our souls or our spirits go up into heaven, into the very presence of God, and it is a conscious, alert, aware existence. And that means for the Christian, it is the immediate presence of God. It's called the intermediate state. And I'll talk more about that in a second. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. One gospel back, Luke chapter 16. We get a picture here of a parable that Jesus tells of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, we'll read verses 19 through 31. Well, maybe not the whole thing, just part of it. I want to make the point here. Jesus said there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And we'll just stop there because the point of what Jesus One of the main points that comes out of that text is that when we die, our bodies remain in the grave, but something happens to that invisible, immaterial, spiritual part of us. We go to one of two places. If you're a believer, you go immediately into the presence of God to a place of rest and comfort. And if you're not a believer, you go into a place of torment, awaiting the final day and the final judgment, which will then get even worse for you. And so for the Christian, death ushers in the immediate presence of God. But for the non-Christian, punishment and anticipation of the final judgment in the lake of fire. Now remember what Paul said in Philippians, to depart and be with Christ is far better. And in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. I believe we get a picture here of what is the believer's experience whose soul leaves their earthly body upon death and enters into the presence of God. What is that intermediate state like? What is it like? What what can we expect? What can you expect? What should we expect for those that we love who pass from this earth and go into the presence of God? What should we expect for them? 
Hold on to this, folks. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is talking about um, it's a scene in heaven, those who've come out of great suffering, and this is their experience before God. And I, I think this is going to be true of people and believers in every age. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Revelation seven fifteen, And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Listen to this language. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what awaits you, Christian, when your earthly body ceases to live, but your spirit goes into the presence of God. God Himself shepherding you, caring for you, providing for you, protecting you. Few things are more precious than that. And that is what awaits all of us who have put our hope in Jesus. But it gets even better than that because, like I said, this is the intermediate state. This isn't the final word for our dwelling with God. We wait for a new creation. That's not just a spiritual heavenly existence, but also an earthly one. That's the promise of the resurrection. Is not just that we're going to exist in spirit in heaven, but that God's going to create a new earth that has no sin and we're going to get new bodies that can't die, can't get sick, that aren't corrupted by sin in any way. And we're going to dwell body and soul with God forever. And that is far better. That is far better. And that's what we long for. That's the hope that we have when we read here in just a minute and Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. One day, as He rose never to die again, so all His people, we will be given bodies that can never die. Bodies that can exist in the presence of God. It won't be the experience of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he in his sinful flesh beheld the Lord and he said, woe is me, I'm undone. There's not going to be any more woe is me in the new creation. There will be no sin. And so we will be able to look upon the face of our God and of our Savior with freedom and joy forever. That's where we're going ultimately. And so yes, from our perspective, our beloved believers fall asleep. From our perspective, but for their experience, they awake and they go into the presence of God. All right, finishing up this section in verse 16, we see Thomas responding to this. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow's disciples, fellow disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. Now we can see here. Thomas is very admirable for his dedication to die with Christ, but he didn't yet realized that what mattered was not that he would go to die with Christ, but that Christ would go to die for him. Our hope in life and in death is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. 
Always remember that. So we've seen Jesus' determination. We've seen death's transformation. And lastly, in verses 17 through 27, we see back to Jesus again, Jesus' revelation. We see Jesus' revelation. Look again at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And let's just stop right there because this is important contextually. There was a superstition common in the day that when a person died, their soul kind of hovered over their body for about three days, maybe looking for an opportunity to go back in. But after three days, it's when rot and decomposition would really set in and then the soul would depart not to come back. And so the fact that John mentions that Jesus found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days means this. Everybody would be convinced that Lazarus was really dead. If Jesus had somehow gotten there just a day after, then people might say, well, the soul just came back in. Jesus didn't really do anything because there were stories, you know, people who's in many ways, seem dead and no noticeable heartbeat, and they're being carried on the funeral beer and casket and whatever, and they, they revive and say, like, oh, that's, that's all this was. He really, Lazarus didn't really die. He, he just revived. But the fact that Jesus came four days after Lazarus is in the tomb means that everybody knows without a shadow of a doubt that Lazarus was really and truly dead. And so Jesus arrives four days after to prove his power to raise the dead is real. And so we see Martha come out. Martha comes out to, to, to talk to Jesus briefly. And she says, Lord, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so I think we see a real statement of grief on her part. I mean, because Mary, when she comes eventually, she says the exact same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I think we see a real statement of grief on Martha's part. Again, you know, Jesus was, he, had he left when he heard, he still wouldn't have gotten there in time. So I don't think Martha is, is indicting him. She's simply making a statement saying, Lord, I know that if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And then verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so she's truly grieving and she's trying to, to, to put on a show of strength and, and faith. And we see a very imperfect statement of belief in verse 24. And she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know at the last day he will. Because that was a common Jewish belief at the time, rightly so, that there was a, uh, the last day coming, and when that last day came, there would be a resurrection. There would be a resurrection. So she rightly believes that, but what she missed is that the resurrection begins before she thought it would. And this is where it gets so crucial for us to understand what is going on. Because Jesus is revealing himself, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So we talk about Jesus's revelation. He's going to say something significant about himself. This is one of the, the seven I am statements in the gospel of John, where Jesus is identifying himself uh, with God and as the Messiah in a profound way. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What is going on here? Why doesn't Jesus just affirm that Martha was right about the last day resurrection? 
I mean, if that's all it was, then you should have said, you're right, Martha. You know, you, way to go. You got the right attitude. You have the right faith. You got the right doctrine. You know a day's coming when Lazarus is going to rise again. Why doesn't he just say that? Why? Because that resurrection isn't just future. It's present now in our lives. Mark has mentioned this before, and I know I've mentioned it before. We live in a very interesting period of time in the scope of history and what's been called the overlap of the ages. The age we live in is the present evil age, and it, or should say it's going like this, but there's the promise of this future glorious age when the kingdom of God comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, when eternal life comes, when the resurrection happens, and that's the, the, the future age, the, the age that's to come. And in typical mindset in Jesus's day, when this current age ends, the new age begins. So it's like this age, full stop, new age. And what, what the Bible shows us is there's actually an overlap between these two ages. There is an overlap. So that the age to come, the age of the resurrection of the Spirit, eternal life, and all of that, it breaks into the present age. So that for a space of time between the first and second comings of Jesus, there's an overlap. The new age has broken in. It's not here fully, but it's here. And we taste of it and we experience it in an initial way. Go back to John chapter 5, if you will, real quick. John chapter 5, I want you to see this. This is from Jesus' own words. Okay, Jesus well understood the doctrine of the resurrection. He got that. He understood it. Look at John chapter 5. And let's just look at verse 25 for the sake of time. John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is talking about two resurrections, if you caught that. He definitely acknowledges the last day, end time, resurrection of all people, some to life, some to judgment. But that's not the only resurrection he mentions. Look again at verse 25. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So everybody participates in that final global resurrection. But there's another one he just mentioned tied to that one that not everybody participates in. Only some people participate in this one. And the ones who participate in this one are those who hear his voice and they live. So there's life before the resurrection and then there's resurrection life. Is that, I mean... That seems pretty clear. Think about other texts. What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I thought that was only future. Well, it is, and it's broken into the present, and we're starting to experience it now while we wait for the fullness of it later. 
Eternal life was something that was only future. But what does Jesus say? If you believe in him, you have eternal life. So that future reality is broken into the present and we begin to experience it now. Not in its fullness, but we really experience it. And there's a whole lot of other things we could say. So there's two resurrections in this sense. One is spiritual. The one he says in verse 25 is a spiritual resurrection. That's what happens when the gospel is preached and we get convicted and we repent and believe. We experience new life. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And then verse 5, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved and raised us. That's resurrection language. You've been raised with Christ. We're still waiting the final resurrection, the physical part of it. But if we're a believer, we've experienced the spiritual aspect of it. It's broken in and it's something that we have now. That's why Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. Being born again means you're being spiritually resurrected. You're being regenerated. You're coming out of darkness into light. And it's something we absolutely must experience if we are to be in God's presence forever. And the reason why I mention that in light of what's going on here in John 11 is because Lazarus is being raised from the dead does not just picture the final day resurrection. It does picture that in a way. But it also pictures what happens to believers now. Why is it that you have faith in Jesus? It's because God called you out of death into life. This is a call that creates life when it is given. Jesus is going to say, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus comes out of that grave. Lazarus comes out of that grave. That is exactly what happens to us when the gospel is preached. Jesus calls his chosen ones and he calls us by name. And what happens? We come forth into new life. So many people in this church can testify to that. They were dead to the things of God. They hated the things of God. They were indifferent to the things of God. And then one day, all of a sudden, this Bible becomes alive. They love Jesus. They hate their sin. How does that happen? It's because Jesus called them out of death into life. That's why. That's why we have to preach the gospel because it's only through the preaching of the gospel that Jesus gives that call. And so we see in this text, man, there's so much more I wish we could spend time on. We see Jesus's determination. We see death's transformation. And then we see Jesus's revelation that he is the resurrection and the life as we are about to go to prayer, I just ask you to consider a few things. Are you as determined to obey God as you could be? Are you soaking daily in the Word of God? If not, just confess your neglect to the Lord. Find forgiveness and pray for help and strength to be in His Word more. Maybe you fear death. Take hope by what we've seen today. Death for the Christian is entrance into the presence of God. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. And know that new life is found in Jesus alone. If you don't have it, if you say, I've never experienced that, call out to God right now. Ask Him to make you alive. Ask Him to give you new life. And don't stop asking. 
until you get it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this text. Wow, there's so much here, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that our hearts would be so encouraged because we know that death is not the end. We know what awaits us if we are believers. We know. We know there is the presence of God, the, the, the immediate presence of God and the care and comfort and protection of God. Lord, what a hope. And I pray, Lord, that it would infuse our thinking and our feeling in the days to come. Lord, that we might give testimony to the reality of who our Savior is and all that He's done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.